looking at verses 6 to 8 and then down to verses 16 to 23. Greg Howe did the uh, verses in the middle last week. So two weeks ago, we began our month-long study in the book of Colossians. And in that letter, the Apostle Paul writes to a community of Christians in Colossae who are being influenced by false teaching. And these false, or this false teaching affirmed that believing in Jesus is a good start and a foundation for our spiritual lives, and that now we should press on to maturity. We should keep certain days holy. We should deny ourselves worldly pleasures. We should master deeper doctrinal teachings, and we should seek spiritual experiences. That's what these false teachers were teaching. And Paul couldn't disagree more. And in his letter, he warns the Colossians that to follow such teaching is to go off on a wild goose chase after false treasures when the true treasure is right there under your nose. We saw two weeks ago in Colossians 1, verses 24 through chapter 2, verse 5, that Paul appealed to the Colossians as an expert treasure hunter whose passionate purpose was that everyone find the true treasure, Christ alone. Then last week, Greg Howe took us through Colossians 2, 9-15, where Paul gave us a lavish description of just what a treasure Christ is. We saw that Christ is absolutely matchless. And for those who follow Him, Christ is full of God's fullness and He fills us up with God. Christ has given us new hearts, cutting away the old sinful self. Christ has given us new life, bringing us into the power and freedom of God. Christ has forgiven all of our sins, canceling all of the old debts that were against us in relationship to God. And Christ has conquered every other power and influence which could harass us, which could stand against God's plans for us and for this world. And so Greg encouraged us to let our imaginations be full of these realities and and not to find our treasure in terms of other ideas which may be in vogue for the moment. Well, today then we come to the main point of Paul's whole letter, his his ringing urgent plea, chapter 2, verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him. Don't let anyone... Talk you out of the true treasure. You began with Christ, Paul is saying. He was your treasure. You believed the message. You heard about Him. You you accepted Him as your Lord. You were baptized. You, You gave your life in allegiance to Christ. Now stick with Him. Keep on in Him. Continue to live in Him. In verse 7, Paul expands on what he means. Let me paraphrase. Let your roots go deep down into Christ. Let your life be built upon Christ, your firm foundation. Let your faith in Him and in the truths you were taught about Him grow stronger and surer. And if you continue to treasure Christ like that, what will the result be? You will overflow with thankfulness. Have you ever known people like that? People full of gratitude for what Christ has done, like like Barbara at the beginning of the skit. (laughs) People who've discovered rich treasure, who've 
been eating at a sumptuous banquet, who've been drinking at the well of life itself, may we as CBC continue to grow into that kind of people. Well, Paul, the the treasure hunting expedition leader, has exhorted the Colossians to stick with him in discovering and uncovering the the true treasure. And now beginning in verse 8, he warns them against the distractions and the distractors that they're meeting along the way on this quest for treasure. You could think here of the Greek hero Odysseus on his epic voyage and, and, and the sirens who, who sang alongside of his ship trying to, to lure him off course to be waylaid on their island. You could think of, of uh, Christian and Pilgrim's Progress on his trip to the celestial city and the citizens who come out from the town of Vanity Fair who, who call him to turn aside and to, and to enjoy the pleasures that they can offer for a time. Paul warns the Colossians and us of of three types of such people who would lure us away from the true treasure. We just had a moment of clarity and then it (laughs) disappeared. (laughs) They're working on it. Okay. So three types of people. And don't miss the fact that all of these three types are very religious people. I'll call the three kidnappers, gatekeepers, and self-appointed umpires. First kidnappers, verse 8, Paul warns, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow or deceptive philosophy. Paul's warning the Colossians to watch out for false teachers who would lure the Colossians off the path of the true treasure and would then kidnap them. What could be the motivation of these kidnappers? Well, profit, of course, and you see that if you read some of Paul's other letters. There's money to be made. There's fame to be garnered. There's power to be acquired by attracting followers. Today in the church arena, we sometimes call this sheep stealing. It's when someone who's got a bright idea or who's a smooth talker draws a crowd to themselves. Uh, themselves. They, they, they build a following, but not because that leader or that teacher really cares about the people in the crowd, but rather because they want to be somebody. And Paul says, watch out for people like that. These kind of people are out there. They can really spin a yarn about the treasures that they know about. But really, they just want to kidnap you for their own profit. They won't lead you to freedom at all. They'll just lead you to a new kind of bondage. Second, Paul warns us about gatekeepers. Verse 16. Don't let anyone judge you, he says, by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These ones doing the judging are gatekeepers who make a big deal about who's in and who's out. Basic sociology tells us that whenever you have an in-group and you have an out-group, the in-group always develops certain boundary markers to distinguish who's in from who's out. Dr. Seuss made this... uh, idea famous with this story about the Sneetches. Some Sneetches had green stars on their bellies and these star-bellied Sneetches thought they were better than all the other Sneetches with plain bellies. In Paul's day, the main boundary markers which separated insiders from outsiders were Jewish traditions like eating kosher and being circumcised and, and keeping the Sabbath and other festivals. 
And evidently part of what the false teachers in Colossae were doing was telling the Gentile Colossians that if they really wanted to be in part of the true believers, they needed to adopt these boundary markers. Today the boundary markers are different, but the gatekeepers are around just the same. We'll talk a bit more about that later. But before we do, let's look at the third type of person that Paul warns the Colossians against. Self-appointed umpires. Verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. The picture here is of an umpire who disqualifies you from the game. Verse 20 continues the thought. Since you died with Christ to the world, why do you submit to its rules? The word submit in this last phrase is a passive and and it's perhaps better translated, why do you let yourself be made to submit to its rules? I like the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message translation. Why do you let yourself be bullied? In other words, don't let any self-appointed umpire impose their rules on you and so disqualify you from the game. It reminds me of the way my kids first learned to play games. They want to play a game until you start winning. And then they want to start changing the rules so that they're not losing, right? Now, as a parent, this is mildly annoying, especially if you're competitive like my wife and I are. (laughs) But when the kids play unsupervised, it can be downright maddening for them. You you have one kid, a bossy, self-appointed umpire, who makes all the other kids play by that kid's rules so that that kid has a better chance to win, right? And and maybe they're always changing the rules. Well, that's what Paul is accusing these false teachers of. They're making up rules to suit themselves and they make everyone else abide by them. If you were a real Christian, you would be having spiritual experiences like I am. You'd be, God would be talking to you like he talks to me. If you were a real Christian, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't eat that. You wouldn't dress like that. You wouldn't even touch that. See, I don't. Self-appointed umpires. Kidnappers, gatekeepers, and self-appointed umpires. Paul warns us that all three types of false teachers, or maybe they're the same teachers acting in these various roles, that these kind of folks are out there. They're luring us away from the true treasure which is found in Christ alone. All right, let's go deeper into this. We've talked about the false teachers. Now, let's take a closer look at the false teachings themselves, the the false treasures that these teachers are promoting. And I see five false treasures, false teachings, which Paul warns us about in this passage. And they're all still around today in one form or another. So let's look at each of them. The first is the many, many isms which were and are promoted in the world. Verse 8, hollow and deceptive philosophy, Paul calls them, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Paul's not against philosophy per se. But Paul is against, and what he's against, is ways of viewing the world, ways of of describing what's wrong with the world and, and what needs to be done to fix the world, which are based on human wisdom and don't take Christ into account. For instance, one such ism today, liberalism. 
What's wrong with the world is that we haven't gone far enough in throwing off the old ways. And, and uh, we haven't gone far enough in embracing uh, tolerance, equal, and compassionate treatment of all. And so the solution is more and better education. And the re- a redistribution of wealth, perhaps. And, and, of course, putting more liberals in places of authority and influence. Or how about another ism? conservatism. What's wrong with the world is that we've thrown out the tried and true values of the past. The solution is to go back to the wisdom of those who came before us, especially the wisdom of Adam Smith. And of course, to get more conservatives in positions of leadership. Or how about individualism? What's wrong with the world is that Systems have a way of beating down and and swallowing up individual people. The solution is for individuals to have the education, the self-esteem, the the mental health to be able to live healthy and prosperous lives. Or how about socialism or pluralism or environmentalism or Lutheranism or Pentecostalism or we could go on and on. Arguably, there's something good and true about each of these isms, arguably. And you can be a Christian and you can believe in any one of them. There are faithful and fervent Christian liberals and Christian conservatives. And we've all been deeply influenced by individualism. The problem for Paul, though, is when these isms don't have Christ at the center. As Greg reminded us last week, Christ is the king of the whole universe. The fullness of God dwells in Christ. He's the head over every power and authority. And so any analysis of the problems which face our world, which doesn't take into account what Christ has saved us from, is ultimately deceptive. And any analysis of the solution which doesn't have Christ on his throne right at the center, is ultimately hollow and empty. So we have to ask ourselves if we're a Christian liberal, am I more liberal or am I more Christian? Or for others of us, am I more conservative or am I more Christian? Who influences my view of the world and and current events more? NPR, The New Yorker, Jim Wallace, or Jesus Christ? Rush Limbaugh, Fox News, Jim Dobson, or Jesus Christ? If we're really honest, the answer may make us feel uncomfortable. Watch out, Paul says. If any of these isms replace Christ at the center, they'll lead you off track and away from the true treasure. Second treasure that the false teachers were promoting, we've mentioned it already, boundary markers. Markers which determine who's in as the people of God and who's out. Who's really spiritual And who's a second-class Christian? 
Verse 16, uh, about what you eat or drink, uh, religious festivals, new moon celebrations, Sabbath days, diets and days. Down through the ages, these boundary markers have changed. Some Christians don't wear buttons. Some Christians don't work or play on the Lord's Day. Some or other Christians don't eat meat on Fridays. Still others don't smoke, don't drink, don't dance, don't play cards, don't go to the movies. How about today? What are our boundary markers? Well, it gets subtle. Surely we'll admit that you can be a Christian and have green hair and lots of body piercings and and maybe lots of black leather. But can you show up at CBC looking like that with, with 10 of your best friends and be accepted and embraced as fully one of us? What if you smoke? What if you have AIDS? Paul says the boundary markers, the, the diets and days that were so popular in his day were a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, he says, is found in Christ. The picture here is of Christ standing on the timeline of history, casting a shadow back into Old Testament times. Sure, the shadow was helpful back then to to give us a vague idea of the shape of God's salvation, which was to come. But now that we're on the other side of history and we can see the reality, why would we go back to the shadow? Paul continues this thought in verses 21 to 23. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Paul's point is that when Christ came and and we put our trust in Christ, we died to the old world, the before Christ world, when all we had was the shadow. Now we have Christ. He teaches us how to really live, how to really be the people of God. Our only boundary marker now, as Paul puts it in in Colossians 1.27, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in us through the Holy Spirit who, who put to death, or sorry, put us to death to the old world and raised us again in newness of life into a new kingdom, a new creation. And now through the Spirit, we're being transformed on the inside and it's working its way out into every aspect of our life and every aspect of this world. And we're becoming the people that God wants us to be. In chapter 3 next week, Paul will, will lay this all out for us in detail. He'll urge us to be a community which is growing in compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forgiveness. Those qualities, the very character of Christ, are what sets us off as the people of God and the followers of the King. It's not about the external stuff, like what we eat or wear anymore or which days we observe. Those are false treasures. The third false treasure that these teachers were promoting was asceticism. Verse 23 talks about self-imposed worship, false humility, and harsh treatment of the body. This is taking external religion to a whole new level. Thinking that you can advance spiritually by denying yourself the pleasures that other people enjoy. And we don't know exactly what forms that this took in the case of the Colossians, but down through the ages, Christians have worn scratchy hair shirts. They've crawled for miles on their knees 
on pilgrimage. They've uh, slept almost naked on cold stone slabs. All as ways of, of either impressing God or of, of beating down their bodies, which they saw as sinful. And it's possible that the Colossians were told that these kinds of measures would help them to have mystical experiences of connection with God. Even today, doctors tell us that if you fast for long enough and you deny yourself protein, you'll start to see some funny things. But Paul points out the basic problem with all of these ascetic practices. End of verse 22. They lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Actually, the phrase sensual indulgence is a bit misleading. Literally, the phrase Paul uses is the indulgence of the flesh. And for Paul, the flesh is much more than our desire for food or sex or drink or comfort. The flesh very much involves our basic bent toward pride and selfishness as well. And it manifests itself in boasting and strife and, and quarrels, etc. Paul's point is that legalistic rules and, and boundary markers, do this, don't do that, and even ascetic practices like fasting and self-denial can make you look holy on the outside, but they can't change your heart on the inside. In fact, holy-looking people can be some of the most arrogant, selfish people you'll ever meet. The third year I lived in Hungary, I worked at a Bible school, and um, we had one student who was very serious about his Christianity. He prayed a lot every day. He, he fasted. He tried not to have too much fun. He looked down on those who weren't serious enough about their faith in his opinion. And you know what? None of this helped him master his flesh. It, it didn't make him humble. It didn't make him gracious or loving or, or self-sacrificing or forgiving. It didn't make him more dependent on Christ. It didn't cause him to overflow with thankfulness to Christ. If anything, it was the opposite. You see, only Christ can conquer the flesh. And there's an important place for fasting and self-denial. Don't get me wrong. But... It, there to be ways of, of cooperating with and, and leaning on Christ and pressing deeper into Christ and the work that Christ wants to do in us. But to do these things to gain points with God or to fashion some sort of external spirituality fails utterly because it has no power against the flesh, which is the very thing that needs to be transformed. Another student at that Bible school was an example of Paul's fourth warning to us against seeking our treasures in spiritual experiences. This other student would spend hours in the spirit, as he called it, praying and having mystical communion with God. This guy was really spiritual. He was so spiritual that his flatmates complained that he never had the time or the inclination to help them clean up the flat or to do the dishes. He was above all that. Paul warns us in verse 18, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. 
Paul's warning us, don't let anyone who tells stories about hearing God's voice or seeing visions make you feel bad because that doesn't happen to you. Or, or that you're less of a Christian as a result because that's not your spiritual experience. Because the key, Paul says, to spirituality isn't having experiences or, or uh, uh, visions of heavenly angels or whatever, as wonderful as those may be to the people God blesses with them. But rather, true spirituality, verse 19, Paul says, is being a part of Christ's body and staying connected to the head, Christ. That's how you grow spiritually. Spiritual experiences can have a way of isolating us. That guy, that spiritual guy at the Bible school, he didn't have time for Christ's body. I'm not even sure he had respect for the rest of us. But Paul exhorts us to be a part of the body so we can grow together into Christ, the head. Just as our head nourishes our body and and, uh, takes in food and and, um, breath, and just as it directs our body, so we're to be connected into Christ, our head, and, and connected into one another so that we grow and mature spiritually as we're connected to the head. Finally, fifth, Paul warns us about the false treasure of the basic principles of this world. And this phrase, basic principles of this world, occurs in verse 8. It occurs again in verse 20. And and it's hard to translate. Other translations express it as the elemental spiritual forces of the world. In Greek, it's stoicheia tu kosmu, the, the stoicheia of the world. And this word stoicheia has two basic meanings. And and track with me here because for me, this is the best part of the whole passage. On the one hand, this word can refer to the basic building blocks found in the world. The um, ABCs, the one, two, threes, the basic principles, the basic elements. And in this view, Paul is saying that the false teaching that's being spread in Colossae are based on simplistic principles, which have now been made obsolete by Christ. There were basic principles, basic elements, the basic principles of the world, but they've been obsolete by Christ now. On the other hand, stoicheia can also refer to the elemental heavenly spirits of the world, stars and and spirits which the ancient peoples associated with them. William Barclay explains, It's almost impossible for us to realize how dominated the ancient world was with the idea of the influence of the elemental spirits and the stars. Astrology was then, as someone has said, the queen of the sciences. This is astrology, not astronomy. Even men so great as Julius Caesar and Augustus, so cynical as Tiberius, so level-headed as Vespasian, would take no step without consulting the stars. Men and women believed that their whole lives were fixed by them. If he was born under an, uh, I'm sorry, if a man was born under a fortunate star, all was well. If he was born under an unlucky star, though, he could not look for happiness. If any undertaking was to have a chance of success, the stars must be observed. Men were the slaves of the stars. In this view, Paul is saying that the false teaching in Colossae is giving too much credence to spiritual powers and stars, which Paul says have been conquered by Christ and have no more sway 
over our lives. So on either meaning, the basic principles, the spiritual forces, how do these stoicheia apply to us today? Well, what are the basic fundamental building blocks and influences of our world today? What are the things we depend on? What are the things that we fear? What are the givens, the things we take as, as given, as for granted, and, and we work our lives around them? Well, one way of getting at this is to think of the serenity prayer. Do you know the serenity prayer? Lord, give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, right? Well, what are the things we cannot change or that we've been told by the world we cannot change? Let me give you some possible examples. I guess I'll always be this way. All we have to do is pay taxes and die. The doctors can't do anything else for you. You better put your affairs in order. I could never live without blank, fill in the blank. If we don't turn back the tide of liberalism or conservatism or Islam or whatever, we should be very afraid for our country. These are all stoicheia, givens which we, we take for granted in the world, basic realities, basic principles which we depend on, which we take as, as immovable and fundamental givens and, and which even cause us to fear. And so which we inadvertently give our allegiance and our reverence to instead of giving them to Christ. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Paul says, I've got some wisdom for you. Think again about the things you cannot change. Christ conquered every power and authority. In Christ, you died to the stoicheia. You were raised anew to a new life where Christ and his will is the only basic principle. What Christ says, what Christ wants, goes and nothing else. And he has come to make you whole and to set you free. And not just you, but the whole world. The gospel is good news, isn't it? Amen. Have you ever seen one of those old pirate movies where there's an exciting adventurous quest for buried treasure and the protagonist overcomes great odds, uh, they, they survive close calls, they, they encounter near misses, they, they almost give up in despair along the way and then finally near the end, finally they find the buried treasure. And they dig it up and they hoist up the heavy chest and they pry it open. And inside, at long last, they find a big pile of stones. Or even worse, bones. That's what Paul warns us 
is awaiting us if we leave behind the true true treasure and we go off looking for other treasures. Stick with Christ, He exhorts us. Go after the real thing. Sink your roots deeper into Christ. Build your life more firmly on Christ. Strengthen your commitment to Christ. And be like a jug full of fine drink overflowing with the gratitude which comes from enjoying the treasure which is Christ. Let Christ loom larger in your life. He's our treasure. Let's pray. God, as we continue this month in the book of Colossians where Paul, with all of his passion and heart, as he's pouring out his life in prison because he believed so firmly in this and your spirit is spurring him on, I pray that you would paint it large in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. And that all these other things would come into perspective. They're all good things, but without Christ at the center, we miss out on the thanksgiving and the joy and the freedom that you came to bring, as well as the wholeness and transformation. God, may it be true among us, may we be a people who are passionate about Christ and who are getting to know him more and more, week by week, year by year. In his name and for his glory. Amen. And the challenge is whatever that thing is that the Spirit was nudging you about as we looked at God's Word this morning, to follow through and take His lead on that.